We're, we're live. Hi, everyone. I don't, know, I don't know if you guys can hear the prayer, but I had a really special moment up here. Um, in my childhood, I just want to let you guys know, I was the anchor of my Little League baseball team. And my coach chose to set his anchor deep in the recesses of right field. Um, I, my skill set of being slow, unobservant, and not very agile uh, made me uniquely qualified to sit in right field. <laughs> Needless to say, I did not love playing baseball. Um, I, was, I was a spectator in a uniform. Uh, it was, I, even when I was batting, and so I'm like right in the heart of the action of everything happening in the, in the ball diamond, I quickly realized that nine-year-old pitchers are much better at throwing balls than they are at throwing strikes. So even in the batter's box, I knew that my chances of getting on base were substantially better if I employed the statue method. And I'd just stand there, and I'd watch them come zinging by, and I got on base. It worked enough. I don't know the percentage, but I got on base enough. But I, I just felt like, you know, being with the teammates was fun. You know, going to the games was kind of fun. But, but I never felt like I was really part of the action of what was going on. And in the moments where I did feel like I was part of the action, it was terrifying because my skill set was not such that it should be part of the action. It wasn't enjoyable. Do you ever feel like that in your faith? Like I'm wearing the uniform, I'm on the team, and I feel like I'm best serving the team when I'm in the corner of the field that the ball never goes to. And in the moments where I'm not spectating and I am involved in what's happening on, happening and going on, it's actually kind of terrifying. In our spiritual lives, I think sometimes we, we get bored, we feel like this spectator, we, we, we kind of allow our hearts and minds to wander as we're, uh, as we're going through the steps of faith, and we, we feel like these, the real important things are for the professional Christians. You know, those who have a degree or, or are in vocational ministry or have just been walking with Jesus for a long time. Those are the people that should be out front. Those are the people that should be serving. Those are the people that should be doing it. And we, we feel like we, we lack confidence in ourselves. And I think we, we also, if we're really honest, we're, we're lacking confidence in the Lord. We're lacking confidence in what the Lord is able to do with us. With us who, who, are, who are trying to be good, godly people. With us who are, who are trying to serve and we don't know how. We don't, we don't know what to do if the ball comes our direction. And there's a unique opportunity that comes with short-term ministry trips. Whether that's going overseas, going 
going out west, heading to a camp for a while. There's a unique experience that I've seen in youth and adults alike. And, and here's basically what it is. People go on some sort of short-term ministry trip and they go, wow, like I really feel like God used me this week. Or wow, like we just kept praying and things kept happening. And this was such a unique experience. And, and inevitably, I hear words that sound something like, I wish my spiritual walk at home was like what I've had this last week. And my message is always, it can be. Because, the la- okay, I'll just use the last overseas trip I led was to Guatemala. God is no more present in Guatemala than he is in Des Moines, Iowa. God, like there's not something in Guatemala that like you're, you're closer to heaven and so God hears you better. Like if you do a trip to Nebraska, I get it, but in Guatemala, <laughs> it's, not, it's, not that much, it's not that much closer to heaven. Here's the difference. When you're on that short-term ministry experience, whether it's at a camp or overseas or somewhere in between, or, or even running a VBS out of your backyard, what's actually going on is you're being very intentional in how you are living in order to live in a ministerial-like way. Like, I am here to impact people for Jesus. You are typically praying more, and when you're on a short-term mission trip, Uh, or or short-term ministry trip, there's probably a more deliberately structured emphasis on your personal time with the Lord than you have at home. Maybe the whole group is getting up earlier in order to spend individual time. They're ending the day in in worship or, or a devotional time. But then when you go home, you start the day with social media. You end the day with Netflix and you go to bed, and you wonder, why do I feel so dry? And, and, what I'm, and I'm getting away from the point of the message, but what I want us to see is that when we go on those, those ministry trips, we are putting ourselves in a deliberate reliance on the Lord that we aren't doing in our normal daily walk. And when we put ourselves in a deliberate reliance on the Lord, we notice that God is very active around us. It's amazing. And so what we're going into Judges 4 and 5 here is in a lot of stories in Judges, it gets pretty colorful. It gets a little bit gory in kind of a funny way. But what I really want us to see as we go into Judges 4 and 5, which is the story of Deborah, is I want us to realize, is this not working either? We are, we, we really brought our A game for you as a church this morning. We want you to know that. There we go. For a lot of reasons, and for one reason, God gives us more than we can handle. So as we go to Judges 4, John, we just got a lot of slides, and this, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll just do it. Um, Judges 4, verses 1 to 2. Uh, or one through three. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. 
And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he, Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron and oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So keep in mind, for a lot of reasons and for one reason, God gives us more than we can handle. For In this case, their sin, their idolatry, their forgetting about God, their false allegiances all led them away and, and got them there. But it's not always sin. And that's really important for us to know. Because when we think it's always sin that leads us to realize I'm in a situation that's way too big for me that I can't handle on my own, then we usually treat whatever situation we're in with horribly oppressive guilt. But it's not always that. Sometimes God just simply prunes those who are faithful and those who are fruitful. And also, this is very important for the people of Israel at that time. It's essentially important for us. God knows that we are best off when we are fully relying on him. You got it. There you go. All right. This is just really distracting for me. Sorry, I just need a moment. We are best off when we are fully relying on God. And as we step into fully relying on God, what we need to realize is that he wants our best for us. And his best for us is the best for us. So their sin got them there, but it's not always sin. But being in this situation that's more than we can handle, God giving us more than we can handle, so there's, there's lots of reasons it's not always sin. The one reason is it's always to point us to relying on God. See, they had had 80 years of peace under Ehud after he took out Eglon. But now Ehud has died. And what we see is that the people were counting on Ehud for their peace and not the Lord. They were counting on an earthly leader for heavenly good and that never ends well. So the Lord sells them into, Jab into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. But Jabin in this story is not the biggest problem. Jabin's mentioned at the beginning of four that he, he's now ruling over them. And then he's mentioned at the end of four that he dies and is conquered. But the real guy at the heart of this is Sisera, this warlord with 900 chariots of iron. This is horribly terrifying when you have an army that's mostly just people on their feet and we read in chapter 5 in the song that they didn't have a whole lot of weapons to them. They didn't have a great armory in Israel. They had been thoroughly defeated. But here, oh man, are we back in business? I love having something to click. And so the 900 chariots of iron gave the people no choice. They could surrender to this cruelty or they could start crying out to God. And when I was in college, uh, Jesse, the governor of Ventura, 
caught a lot of flack for saying that Christianity is a crutch used by the weak. As you can imagine, this is a wildly unpopular statement for those who are supposed to be humble but are actually quite prideful. And I took exception to it. And I was like, oh, you know, that guy, he's a jerk. I, I don't know what I said. But I was upset. I was bothered like every, mostly everyone else. And then a wiser, older sister in Christ, she was actually one of my college professors, said, that's exactly what it is. We're terribly weak. I need Jesus to stand. I can't stand without the Lord. We are and always will be in utter dependence on the Lord. To be a Christian is to be in utter dependence on the Lord and no other. And one of the healthiest places we can be as Christians is sitting right in the middle of our awareness that we can't do it on our own. That we need the Lord for every day. And so he gives us more than we can handle, and God is graciously involved with his people. It's just, we'll, we'll figure it out later, John. So going on here, uh, God is graciously involved with his people. Check out verse four. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, that was judging Israel at that time. Notice this, she wasn't raised up. It wasn't that the people cried out and God raised up a judge. Deborah is already judging, and not only is she judging, she's sitting under the palm of Deborah. I mean, you're, you're in a good place when a palm tree is named after you, okay? She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for, judge, for, for judgment. Here's Deborah, a prophetess, already there. God, in the midst of this, has a servant named Deborah, and he is using this woman to speak to his people, to give wisdom, to give judgment, to, to help them settle out, that even under oppression, even under these 900 chariots of iron, God is speaking directly to his people through Deborah, and he's giving wisdom, and he's giving care. And so in the midst of this, Deborah calls Barak, son of Abinoam from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, we could also say, behold, the God of Israel has commanded you, Barak, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 people from Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the, gen the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. I'm bringing all of them and 10,000 of you, and I will go, uh, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not, or sorry, I'm skipping ahead, into your hand. I will give them into your hand. Look at what the Lord is saying here. The Lord is promising to accomplish the work for Barak. Barak doesn't realize it. He's getting a pretty sweet deal. He's getting a fantastic deal. God is calling him to get an army and assuring him that the Lord of heaven will take care of the details. Look at the I will statements. I will draw him out to meet you by the river Kishon. I will give him into your hand. 
Through Deborah, God essentially says, I have called you and I will do the hard work for you. God does not set his people on a shelf, but he does the hard work. And he does the hard work with his people involved. He calls the people to himself, uses them as he does the hard work. God is drawing near to the people of Israel in the work of delivering them. You start seeing shades of God's gospel heart here. I'm going to save you. And I'm going to use you. God doesn't say, get out of my way while I do this. He says, come and work for me while I do this. And in so doing, you're going to see just how powerful I am. And you're going to see just how great I am. And you're going to see how I watch over my people. The next thing we see is that the greatest security is in offering yourself to the Lord who fights for you. So here we have Barak's response, verse 8. Barak says, if you will go with me, Deborah, then I will go. But if you will not go, I will not go. She said, surely I'll go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak is, he's hesitantly obedient. It speaks of God's grace that God doesn't just turn from him immediately. But Barak's reputation and, and the accomplishment of the task, his, his reputation in the accomplishment suffers. And while the original readers would have thought this to be quite the blow to Barak, we should note that God has absolutely no problem with using women to accomplish his work. He does it all the time. And Barak, even Barak himself, by the end of the story, doesn't seem to mind. Chapter 5 is a song recounting this, and it's sung in a duet. It's Deborah and Barak. Barak is singing the song that says, Hey, look, JL did a pretty great thing. The point of the song has nothing to do with Barak and his obedience. It's God's deliverance come through a woman. Barak is reluctant to go into the battle, but he rejoices more in the deliverance received than he does in the role he may have had in it. So we have Barak, and then we have the men. These 10,000 from Zebulun and Naphtali. And we'll see in chapter 5, it was actually more as other tribes got in. But these are nameless, unified men. And they go out and they do the work that the Lord has put in front of them. And I got to tell you, being in the book of Judges and being a nameless person, unified in an army who goes out and accomplishes something good is a pretty great thing. That's not all bad to be nameless in the book of Judges. But the thing that these guys did, and we're going to get to this towards the end, is that they willingly offered themselves to the will of God. 
They gave themselves to the will of God. They said, yeah, we'll go meet 900 chariots of iron at the river. We're all for that. Let's go and do it. The Lord is with us. The next, uh, the next character who, who willingly offers itself is actually the river. If you go ahead a couple slides, Courtney, we'll get to a verse with the river out of chapter 5. There we go. Chapter 5, 20 and 21. For from heavens the stars fought. Their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. March on my soul with might. God tells Barak exactly where the battle should happen. And there's something we need to remember here. The whole world is the Lord's home turf. The whole world is the Lord's home turf. There's going to be a table in the back of some people going overseas. And in the second service, we'll be praying for them. And those who go overseas, the global workers, they'll need to learn a new language. They'll probably need to learn two or three new languages. They'll need to learn new cultures. They'll need to get to the point where they can explain the Trinity in a foreign language to someone of a Buddhist or animistic or Muslim or Hindu background. Then they'll plant a church where a church is not welcome. They'll disciple believers who are suffering for their faith. And, and many times the global workers risk being kicked out of the country. And, and this, this life dream, this life work could be ended in a moment's notice. But they always go forward with the confidence knowing that I am planting a church and doing all of this to do it on the Lord's home turf in the Lord's backyard. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So when God said, we're going to meet this guy by the river Kishon, God said, I have a plan for Sisera and his 900 chariots of iron, and my creation is going to serve me in that plan. And so the chariots come roaring down the hill to meet him, and then they learn that chariots of iron, while great on dry, hard ground, don't do well in the mud. And they get stuck. And they, they don't float well while going across a river. They sink like iron. And these 900 chariots that were so intimidating are all of a sudden a distinct disadvantage. Our greatest security is in offering ourselves to the Lord who fights for us. Verse 11 is just this weird kind of side note. Now Heber the Kenite, you're like, who's this guy? Had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. Okay. Pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zanamim, which is near Kadesh. Okay, so there's a Kenite near Kadesh. That's near the battle. It seems weird. And then we get to verse 17. The troops have all been wiped out. They've been swept away. Not a man was left. Verse 17. Then Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Oh, back in verse 11. A little, little pot, plot twist here. I like it. For there was peace between Jabin the, key, Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera. And said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. Oh, you got, 
Never underestimate a woman who can set up a tent. That's all I got to say. So he turned into the tent. She covered him with a rug, gives him this nice warm place. He goes, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. And she opens up a skin of milk. She's like, I mean, she basically gave the guy NyQuil. Gave him a drink, covered him. He said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if a man comes and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. She's like, sure. Um, You just lay your little head down, sister. I I got this taken care of. Let the milk do its work. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and a hammer in her hand, and when she went softly to him, and drove the peg into his temple until it went into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. In case you didn't know. And behold, Barak was pursuing Sisera. Jael, thinking of Sisera's words, tell him no one's in here. Jael goes to the, out to meet him and says, Come, I'll show you the man whom you are seeking. Don't worry, he's not going anywhere. So he went to her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. While none of his men escaped, Sisera thought he had made made it to neutral ground, even favorable ground. Surely, Jael posed no threat to him, no political threat, no physical threat. She was more unassuming than a river. Jail's crafty. She's intelligent. She's strong. She takes matters into her own hands. She does what Barak was not able and confident to do himself. And let's face it, it was a smashing success. She gives him milk, a warm spot, and a weighted blanket. And lets him do what all men long to do every afternoon. Take a nap. And just as Deborah said, a woman gets the credit. Sometimes we get lost in all the details and events of these narratives, and they're exciting, and we miss, if we're not careful, what's going on with the Lord. Take a look at the overall structure of Judges 4. Go ahead and pull that up, Courtney. This this creates what's called, and and I, I I, I benefited from a commentator named last name Davis, pointing this out to me. When we look at the overall structure, we we see a a symmetry. The sons of Israel, Deborah the prophetess, Barak and Sisera call out. Then we have 14, verse 14, right in the middle of this. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Then Barak and Sisera go down, and then where we saw Deborah, now we see Jael, and then we have Jabin, king of Canaan. Again, right in the middle here is the Lord is the warrior. The Lord goes out for you. This is why the greatest security is offered when you're with the Lord, because he's the one who goes out for you. As we think of our lives, there's this 
fear and dread that comes with, I need to participate in the work of God. I need to, I need to uh, share the gospel with the people around me. I need to make disciples. I need to make a stand for what I believe in. The safest place that day for Deborah and Barak was on the battlefield. Isn't that interesting? The absolute safest place for them was at the river looking across at 900 chariots. And the best place for you is in the work God has for you. There's an exhilarating comfort that comes with living and moving in the security of the Lord and in the will of God. It's an exhilarating comfort of being confident that it is the Lord who fights for you. It is the Lord who saves you, the Lord who loves and keeps you. This story of deliverance calls us to trust and praise the Lord who involves us in his plans and to freely offer yourself to him. Chapter 5 starts out, Deborah and Barak, they come up, they have their big duet. There's probably a thrilling Bollywood-style dance that went along with it. Look at, this is verse 2 and verse 9. The leaders, that the leaders took the lead in Israel and that the people offered themselves willingly, blessed the Lord. And here in verse 9, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. In chapter 4, we have two tribes. But in the song... We see other tribes joining them. Ephraim, Benjamin, and Issachar hop right into the battle and support it. And then there's this curse towards Reuben and Dan and Gilead and Asher who sit out. These tribes who could have joined in, even though they weren't explicitly called, they could have joined in along with Ephraim, Benjamin, and Issachar, but instead they were outserved by a river. It is no small thing to give yourself to the will of God. It is no small thing to make yourself available and engage in God's work in a way that does not make sense to the world. Because you look at this in a worldly sense, going out, verse 7 and 8, the villages, this is the description before the battle, the villagers ceased in Israel, they ceased uh, to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as the mother of Israel. When the new gods were chosen, the war in its gates was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel. You catch that? Among 40,000, there's not a shield or a sword. And so, 10,000, if we prorate this, they have a quarter of a shield and a quarter of a sword or spear. And they go out against 900 chariots. It doesn't make sense in the world, but God is not a worldly God. He's a heavenly God. He's the creator of all. When we give ourselves to serve the Lord in a way that doesn't make sense to the world, it's no small thing but it's what we are called to do. 
And as Romans 12 tells us, that in view of God's mercy, it's exactly what we do. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices. It's a major emphasis in this song that people offer themselves willingly, blessing those who do, cursing those who don't, praising the work of Jael who offered herself willingly. We would be people who offer ourselves willingly to the Lord. Offering ourselves willingly to the Lord is the complete opposite of idolatry. It's the purest act of worship to say, Lord, I'm going to offer myself to you. I'm going to, I'm going to make my, I'm going to, I'm going to keep my body pure. I'm going to protect my mind and my heart for you. I'm going to serve in, in, the, in the need that's in front of me. I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to give the Lord what He has given me. Joining in the work of the Lord to serve Him in faith. And it could be little things like, like nursery, coffee, greeting. It could be discipling your kids and grandkids. It could be setting the course of your life in a direction that forsakes the American dream and absolutely pursues the heavenly agenda. You know, sometimes we, we do, though. We, we feel like spectators. We're worried to get involved. What do I have to offer? you imagine what it was like the day of that battle? You're on one side of the Kishon River. I imagine these two armies coming together on the two sides of the river. And there's these 10,000 people gathered. And they look over and they see 900 chariots of iron, horses capable of pulling them. The chariots most likely having warriors on them with weapons and projectiles. You're like, I got a pickaxe. What am I going to do? Brought my kitchen knife. Because we've been oppressed for 20 years. We're all terrified of this guy. He's been abusing us for 20 years. And then Deborah says, The Lord's given him into your hand. This is the day the Lord's going ahead of you. And so you're like, okay, as I'm running down this hill, ahead of me is the Lord running in front of me. And he's chasing them down towards the river too. And I'm going to fight and I'm going to get dirty and it's going to be hard and it's a little bit freaky, but it's the Lord doing the work. And we have this, this battle, this kind of vision in front of us of am I going to be overwhelmed by the chariots or am I going to be overwhelmed by the goodness of God? In uh, No Shortcuts to Success, uh, Matt Rhodes says, obedience happens when people are deeply convinced that God will be with them in their obedience and that Jesus' way is fundamentally good for them. God doesn't call them to go get themselves out of their mess. God calls them to gather 
and says, participate with me as I do the hard work. May we be people who willingly offer ourselves, not because we're so gifted and skilled and matured, but because God is so mighty and loving. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you that you are our warrior. We thank you that you are the one who goes out ahead of us. We thank you that you alone are worthy of praise. And Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. God, if there's, there's anyone in here who, Lord, I, I feel like there's probably a whole lot of us in here who are not willingly offering ourselves. And Lord, we know the first step of willingly offering ourselves is saying Jesus is Lord and I believe God raised him from the dead and asking for forgiveness for our sins. The Lord, is, whether, whether it's offering ourselves for the first time to you or for those of us who, who are maybe a little more seasoned in our faith, to say, I, I, need to, I need to offer myself more. And maybe you know the work that God has in front of you that you've been reluctant. Lord, would you let us trust you, help us to trust you, to offer ourselves freely to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.